Hi, this is Smriti Kirmanandan, your host for Health Forward Podcast. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is to take care of your health. Your road to discovering an all-inclusive, empathetic, and innovative healthcare ecosystem starts right now. Critical care demand has been growing consistently every year by 2% due to the increase in aging population. Most of the critical care system is fragmented under high stress and you have experts working in the space to make it innovative, efficient and sustainable. Today, I speak with Dr. Lakshman Swami, who is a medical director at Mass Health and is a pulmonary critical care physician at Cambridge Health Alliance and an instructor in medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Lakshman, my friend, welcome to Health Forward. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. So we'll just dive right in. What has inspired you to be in the field of health? Yeah, you know, I, I it's kind of a, a, a weird story. So, you know, actually, when I, this is one of the benefits, I think, of pursuing all my education in uh, in America is that I didn't know for a long time. And honestly, some, I look at a lot of my family overseas and, and I, I think if I was in a different country, I don't know if I would have been able to be a doctor. I bounced around so much. But I, I actually started studying um, Greek and Roman classics in college for a couple of years, studied ancient Greek. Um, and then I started to get more interested in psychology. And what what actually really changed my mind and focused me a little bit was, you know, I, I had spent my whole life growing up with my grandparents in my house. And I saw one of them get very sick in front of me at a, a, a gastrointestinal bleed and was like vomiting blood in front of me. So that really stuck with me. And, and then along on the other side of that, um, my whole childhood uh, was spent with my one of my uncles, my mother's brothers living with us because he had a pretty debilitating paranoid schizophrenia. And so I got to, you know, see that what the what the lived experience of it is really up close for so many years. And I never really thought about it much as just a part of my childhood. And when I went to school, it, it slowly started to click a little bit like, you know, what if I could, what if I could actually be a part of doing something to make that better? Because I saw how significant that disease was. Um, and so that started me down the path of actually studying neurosciences. My in, in my undergraduate days, I actually had a had a my thesis was using, believe it or not, mouse models of schizophrenia and giving them nicotine to see if it would improve their performance on all these different behavioral tests. So mm-hmm. that that was actually the starting of my journey in healthcare. Thank you for sharing. I mean, that's pretty interesting that you went from Greek to healthcare and uh, you've kind of drawn inspiration from your own personal experiences. That's amazing. I recently read your article on the Washington Post. I fought hard for you in the ICU. So did COVID. What would you like to share a bit more about this experience during the pandemic? Yeah, that was that was such a whirlwind of a time. And, and I remember um, you know, it was actually weeks after I had taken care of that patient and so many patients just like it. And I, I was sitting in my my brother-in-law's home and getting my my then two-year-old to, to bed. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about, about um, that whole experience. And this is, you know, a year later after the first surge. And it was just so... 
it just was, you know, even these recent surges that it was so imprinted on me and I just couldn't get it out of my head. And so I started writing um, and I actually initially wrote this as a series of tweets, um, you know, little short messages on Twitter and that uh, it kind of got a lot of attention. And what I was, what I was trying to express with it was what is it like when I, as an ICU doctor, walk in and meet a patient who's coming in with COVID uh, and who's who's getting very sick um, and isn't yet isn't yet doesn't yet have a breathing tube and all of that stuff in. So I have this opportunity to talk to them, and it was it was a profound moment because the the pace of things in the hospital and the and just the way things were, how busy the ER was and and all of that. Um, I was really the first doctor in many of the, these cases to really be able to talk to the patient and spend time with them. Um, you know, the ER direct doctors are, are working, just seeing so, so many patients. And, you know, if they, had, if they had the time, they would love to sit down, but they are just running from bed to bed and trying to triage, right, in these, in these surges. And I remember I walked in to, take, to talk to this patient, and I, I just had a feeling of, I, I know the way I need to go about this when I talk to this patient. And I just started describing all of the things that we would be doing, which is normal for when I take care of any patient. I say like, these are, these are all the things that you should expect from the care that we're giving you and why we're doing all these things. So it's not a surprise when people are jabbing you and, and on doing all these things. And I knew that, that um, they had a lot of hesitation. They had expressed a lot of hesitation about about um, being resuscitated, right? And having, being put on life support and all of that. And um, to be honest, this is something that we face so often where the public doesn't really understand what, what that means, right? They have an idea from TV shows or they have an idea even maybe from family or friends that, that went through that. And it's, they don't, what, the fundamental thing that so many people don't understand is that it's not something we're choosing in that moment to say, we're going to put you on life support for weeks on end or months or whatever. We're not, it's not exactly elective, right? Where it's, it's not something where we're saying, well, we could do this or we couldn't, and now we're going to do it. We, a lot of the things we do for resuscitation are, are done as, as life-saving measures when the alternative is death. It's not wait and see. It's not try something else, try another medicine. It's death. And that's one of the things that has, that's really, I've noticed over and over again, that especially with all of the language about what it means to have a breathing tube um, during the pandemic. So many people come in and they're like, I don't want that. I don't want to end up on life support for my whole life. I don't want to go through all that. And they have a lot of good reason for saying that. But what they often don't know, and what was the case here, is that what if you will die unless I put this breathing tube in you? And when, when you start to say it like that and phrase it in that way and talk to them, it's, it, it, you know, two things happen. First, they understand what we're really talking about. And second, the gravity of their situation really sinks in. And it's, it's horrifying to be the person who has to deliver that. And it is, it is just a terrible thing to witness when that sinks in. And, some, and this person realizes, you know, yesterday, with COVID, especially yesterday, I was at home and I was doing okay. And now I'm having so much trouble breathing and the end might be around the corner. And unfortunately it was, it really was for this patient. And I don't think any of us could have seen that coming, um, but that's what happens with COVID. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing. I mean, it's such a tough time we've all been through, but I don't think we could have gone this far without people like you staying on the front line and helping us out. So thank you for your service. But this brings to the next question is that in the ICU, a patient receives 200 interventions per day. And clinical mm. decision making, as you know, is critical in the space. How are you approaching this with an innovative lens in the ICU? Yeah, you know, this is, it's, it's critical care has changed so much over the decades. And uh, I know even in the generation just before me, and even when I was a medical student, it was very, it was approached in some ways very differently. Um, and, you know, I think when I was in training and in medical school, it, there really was this idea that we need better medicines. We need better cures. We need be to better understand, like we, we, we need just better therapies to provide. Now that is still true, but now we have an abundance of things we can do to people, right? We have so many different interventions, therapies, diagnostic, all this stuff. And what we have realized now more um, with, with more time and experience in critical care is, you know, as a society, is that so much of what we do really has the potential for harm, actually. And so I think what we're, what we're doing now is we're kind of going to this point of saying we're less focused on making every little number we measure, whether it's vital signs or lab data or whatever, less focused on making all the numbers perfect and more and more focused on trying to see the big picture. Who is this person? What matters to them? How can we provide high value care? And for me in the ICU, that means the least risky, the least chance of complications, um, the least invasive procedures with the highest benefit to the outcome that that person wants. And maybe that person's goal is to live as long as possible. Maybe it's to die comfortably, whatever, maybe it's something in between, whatever it is. How can we get there in, in the way that's the, the most safe and highest value for that patient? One of my colleagues, Matt Shuba, kind of coined this term Zentensivism. <laughs> it's a, a little tongue in cheek, but basically what we're saying is like, we want to provide the best care for this patient. And it doesn't always mean doing more. Sometimes it means you act fast and you act intensively. And other times it means that you take your foot off the gas pedal. And I would say taking it one step further, you know, we're asking ourselves more and more now, how much of what affects an ICU patient's outcomes has to do with their disease and who they are, but how much is actually based on what else is going on in the way we deliver the care? Uh, what happens in our hospital, the way we deliver care, our protocols versus someone else's, how significant the impact is of um, of whether they get sick during a COVID surge or not. Forget whether they have COVID, whether they're coming to the hospital in that setting or not. So there's so many circumstances in the way we deliver care that we're recognizing that has a huge impact on the patient's outcome. All the things that happen to their care after they leave the ICU, we're starting to really get that big picture more, I think. Yeah, I love that answer that you're focusing on high value care and also thinking about what is actually required than producing over care, which is one of the biggest issues mm. faced in America. And I love the new term, zentensivism, is it? Zentensivism, yeah. From a person on the outside like me, it sounds like critical care seems to be a very stressful environment. What are physicians doing that to just stress manage on a daily basis? Well, the first thing I'll say is that I think every clinician is in a stressful environment right now. I think whether you're in primary care, critical care, whether you work in an outpatient dialysis center or you're in an operating room, everyone is really feeling the strain. You know, pa patients are are very sick. They A lot of care has backed up. A lot of people are, are you know, there's so much care to provide, so many people who need it. Um, and, and so I really want to say, first of all, that I think everyone is, is under strain. I think it's different for different fields and all that. But in critical care, 
it's interesting. Many people think of it as emergency medicine. And actually, when you when you come and see us in the ICU, our goal is to try to avoid emergencies and to predict them and avoid them at all costs. We want um, control. You know, the emergency department doesn't have the luxury of control, right? Whatever walks through the doors they're dealing with and things happen all the time unpredictably, day or night. But for us, we have a rhythm to the unit and we really try to eliminate as much chance as we can and try to try to keep a very rigorously controlled environment. But the truth is it's incredibly stressful right now, especially because of COVID The and the exhaustion from COVID just isn't going away so many people are sick. There's no, there's been no real break, right? So, you know, what are people able to do about that? I'm seeing people do all kinds of different things. Um, I'll, t- I'll be honest with you. One of the things I've done is to split my career. So I spend a portion of my time in the ICU being kind of like all on all the time. The, I'm the one that does all the things. And then I get to step away from that and really not think about the ICU, at least in terms of active care delivery, um, and go to a different different job that I have. And then I get to come back. So that's the way I find balance in it. Other people might do research or, or all kinds of things. But I think that it's it's just very hard to be. Um, and I'm really impressed by the people who can who can put more and more hours into it. But it it really puts a real strain on us. Equity has taken the spotlight, especially in the last few years. How is this being implemented within critical care? Yeah, you know, let me start by saying we have a long way to go. Uh, and and it's I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people in the past would have said, Critical care isn't about all that stuff. When people come through our doors, we do the same thing for everyone. I think that first, a lot of what is embedded in that statement is wrong. And we're recognizing that now. The first thing, and I probably the most important, is that the structural inequities that people live with every day drive inequitable outcomes in critical care. How does that happen? I mean, people don't just come in with septic shock. They come in septic shock because their diabetes is so under, uncontrolled, right? Like a lot of, uh, it's it's not lightning bolts that come out of nowhere and send people to our ICU. What we see over and over again is substance abuse, alcohol withdrawal, diabetic ketoacidosis, septic shock, all these, so much of the time we can draw these back to uh, social determinants of health, things that are happening in people's lives that don't, aren't technically medical, but have such a profound impact on on medical um, outcomes. And then what happens to, you know, who who gets those ICU beds? You know, what kind of community has what kind of bed available to its to its um, people? And then what kind of support will people have after they leave? All of these are questions that I think we're looking at and, and definitely not to avoid it at all, to, head, to take it head on, what kind of implicit and maybe even explicit bias um, are we seeing that we are delivering as care providers in intensive care? I think all of that really needs to be taken head on. A a review article just came out this year about racial disparities in ICU outcomes, and there are significant disparities, and largely they can be traced back to the structural issues that are underlying all of this. Thank you, Lakshman, for that answer. I think we have a long way to go, like you mentioned, but I'm glad that we're at least starting at this point, and the focus is beginning to move into equity and how do people get the right care at the right time. Lakshman, you're also a medical director at the Mass Health. Would you share with us some of the programs and the long impact you're currently focusing on? 
Yeah, sure. Thank you. So this is the other job that I was mentioning. I'm a medical director at MassHealth, which is our state Medicaid agency uh, in Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, working uh, at MassHealth is, is just amazing. Um, this, first of all, everyone I work with is is incredibly dedicated, intelligent, just so passionate about improving care for the disenfranchised, right? There's like such a focus on equity. And I'm lucky because I get to work on some of the most exciting programs that focus on value-based care and population health. A lot of the things I was just talking about is the drivers of what men ends up putting people in our ICU, right? Um, and, you know, now and throughout my training in my clinical practice, I've cared mostly for patients in safety net hospital settings. So many of the problems that land them in the ICU start with these uncontrolled chronic problems, like I said, diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, substance use, um, COPD, smoking, all that stuff. And um, very often it's obvious to us in the ICU that these patients need so much more support to manage these chronic problems well. And we see, you know, we see the same patients coming through over and over again because those, those chronic problems are not being supported. So the programs I'm involved with help at the population level, which is totally different. You know, critical care is in many ways the most, you know, one of the most zoomed in medical specialties. We take care of so few patients with such a high ratio of doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists to, to a single patient, right? And um, this is the opposite. I'm zooming out all the way to the population level. And we're talking about targeting resources like case managers and recovery coaches, creating housing and nutrition supports for the patients who need the most. And, and, and maybe most interesting is my work with the quality program. And my work with that is really twofold. What can we do um, as a state agency to ensure that patients are getting the best care? Like, for example, immunizations for kids, all that stuff, right? What can we, how can we do that while keeping and, in fact, trying to reduce the burden of measurement? Because the burden of quality measurement is so heavy on clinicians. And so I think we have a lot of work to do there, but I'm glad that I get to be kind of the voice of the clinician who who often has to deal with these burdensome metrics, right? And uh, to be able to push towards more simple and focused metrics that really can can create a lot of benefit without without putting too much burden on clinicians. So that brings to my other question is, what are some measurements you advise that healthcare system can take proactively to prevent unwanted admissions? There's been a lot of topics around mobile critical care team, more beds in the inpatient facility, mm -hmm. just to reduce yeah. the burden. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a really interesting question because when there's a, you can think about a surge scenario and how much the like, hospitals have redesigned themselves on the spot to manage huge amounts of ICU patients. And what I would say is that, I mean, I don't think that's a sustainable strategy at all. Um, we should do be have a much better job of predicting when patients are coming in and being able to flex towards that without asking for, you know, the current systems are basically getting people to volunteer. A lot of doctors volunteer for surge teams still. That's not sustainable. These are people who are already working full jobs as clinicians and now who are on top of it adding extra hours to get through a surge. So hopefully we're seeing that model kind of break down and go away. Um, and, you know, really there's been so much, especially vaccination to reduce those effect of those surges. I hope that's all over, but thinking bigger picture, what can we do to really prevent these unwanted admissions? So much work is being done here. And I think the bottom line is going to be what can we do to get people the care they need in their homes, in their communities? I think this model of 
having everyone come to the big house and sorting it out there, it's reached its limit in my mind of, of using the hospital as the nexus for care. I think we really need to start to, to not, and I'm not just talking about focusing more on primary care. I think that's important, but I'm saying also programs that we see in Massachusetts, like hospital at home. Um, what can we do to, to get paramedics in the home, whatever, all, all kinds of um, innovative work is being done now to really go to where the patient is and design the care around them there, which both allows them to maintain hopefully a high quality of life um, for certain, you know, of course, if you need really acute care, you're, you're going to need it, but, um, but it reduces the burden on the system. I think it's going to be cheaper. So I'm, I'm really imagining a lot more of the care moving um, out towards the patient actually. Yeah, I love that answer because it focuses in on one, us making healthcare more proactive, but also starting to introduce healthcare and demand. Lakshman, you and I worked on a piece for MedCity News, which focused on virtual reality, hologram, especially for mm -hmm. patients who are dying alone. How far are we from implementing this in the ICU? Yeah, that was, a, that was, by the way, that was a great piece. Um, and <laughs> not just saying that because you talked to me, what you added, what you wrote about was really interesting. I, I, um, Unfortunately, I think that on the one hand, we are really far away because we're just not seeing that stuff happen. And on the other hand, I think the technology is probably there. Um, and I think one of the hardest things with, with any technology when it hits healthcare is that you may have all the pieces to the puzzle, but healthcare is so messy and there's so many barriers and so many dots to connect to actually make it happen. But I really hope we see this happen because I think there's so much potential to, you know, when, when you are an ICU patient, you've never been that, you know, you probably have never been that sick before unless you've been in the ICU before. And you have never been that vulnerable before, right? You're lying there in some time, in some cases, you barely have control over your own body, making, you're not even making decisions for yourself. In many cases, you may not even be conscious. Um, and I think that is a time when people, I see it every day in the ICU. That is a time when people need their family and their social supports more than ever. And one of the worst things about the pandemic has been not allowing the visitors in for all the infection, infection control reasons. And what a dramatic negative effect that's had on patients. See, I've seen overtly patients get delirious and stay delirious because how can they understand what's going on when a bunch of masked people, strangers are talking to them and poking them with needles all day? It's so different when there's their loved one at the bedside. And now, you know, we really should be able to bridge that gap and say, why should they need to be at the bedside? Why, you know, how many of our patients have family abroad or whatever? Maybe the family member is disabled at home and can't come visit. We should be able to overcome all of that with technology that's been available for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I really hope we can start to see that reach, uh, help, help patients really reconnect with them. With their family and their supports. Yeah, completely with you. When I was writing the piece, my first thought was, how do we place empathy at the core of every innovation we try to do, especially in healthcare? And I think that was really the incentive of creating that article. But Lakshman, what I really appreciate about you is that you're not just a physician and a strategist. You're also very creative. During the pandemic, you created a critical care card game. Share with us what is the concept and what would you like for the audience to really learn about the game? 
Yeah, thank you so much. It's really, it's such a labor of love. It's, um, it's something I've, I've poured so much of myself into so many hours of work. I'm still working on it. Um, and we're, we're very excited actually to be at Gen Con, which has, you know, tens of thousands of people coming together for board games. We'll be there in early August. We'll be showcasing the game. So what I'm, I'm hoping for a few things from this. First of all, it's for the general public. I want it to be accessible. I want it to inspire, you know, teenagers to say maybe I could be a respiratory therapist or a social worker or an ICU doctor or whatever. That's all in there and that's all a part of it. And then um, on top of that, I want the public to learn a little bit more of all the stuff that happens in an ICU because it is such an, uh, an alien place to so many people. And I think that when, I, I don't think that the game alone will change this, but we have such a, we, we, you know, there's so much work that we do when we first meet an ICU family to orient them to what's going on. And that time would be, will hopefully we can reach a point where people have a little bit more of a baseline understanding of that stuff so that we can get right to the important stuff of taking care of them and connecting them with their loved ones. So I think that, that I'm hoping that this raises the, the kind of literacy, or if you want to call it that, about what an ICU is and who ICU clinicians are. And then the last thing, and one of the closest to my heart, is just a celebration of healthcare workers. You know, I think every time you play this game, you're going you're gonna to really feel like it's screaming love for everyone who uh, is a healthcare worker from, you know, we have, we have cards in there that, that, that really showcase and celebrate different kinds of doctors and nurses, but also, um, you know, the chaplain, the environmental services team, like really we tried to get everyone. And I, I hope that really shines through. I love it. I think I need to play this as soon as we finish this session. And <laughs> yeah. I think it's really incredible. So if you had to share three takeaways with the future of health, what would that be? Everyone is going to have different ideas on this. So I'll try to keep it um, high level. The first thing I would say is that you can't have health care without social determinants of health being addressed. It doesn't make sense to treat people's end stage critical care disease with huge amounts of money when it would have been so easily preventable with so much cheaper with housing or something, right? So I think the first is addressing social determinants of health. Uh, I think the second, going back to what I was just kind of saying about the game, is we really need more emphasis and investment in patient engagement with the care teams and being part of the care team as and also patient education. There, you know, it's it's really hard. There's so much knowledge in medicine. Um, you know, having been in the system for so long, I, there's still much I've, I have learned that is already so outdated that I don't even know because it's in different fields. That doesn't mean that we can't make the core concepts and core fundamental knowledge more accessible. Uh, and the last thing I think is um, going back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, I really want to see better standardization of processes to allow, to allow clinicians to focus on those unique characteristics of patients that makes medicine human while letting the system manage and not drop the ball and not screw up all of the mundane stuff that, that can't be missed, but, but really doesn't require that much in, like um, deep thinking, you know, and I, I hope we're getting closer to that. Yeah, love the pointers. Lakshman, thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This is Health Forward Podcast, and I'm your host, Smriti Kirbanandi.